Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris, Scott Lease, uh, here with another episode of the Surf and Sales Podcast. Um, super excited. Thank you to Lead411, our sponsor. Uh, if you're looking for uh, intent data, better leads, direct dial numbers, cell phone numbers, uh, based on job changes, and you want to split a plug-in um, on Chrome and to use with LinkedIn, by all means, check out our sponsor, Lead411. Uh, without any further ado, we will introduce... Uh, the author of the Transparency Sale, uh, Todd Capone. Um, and I'm curious, before we do anything else, did it used to be Todd Capone and we had to change it? Or, and, and are you tired of that joke? No, 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 not at all. Actually, my grandpa looked it up and found that he was actually born Capone and he was the one that changed it. So, uh, so yeah, I'm the original and I'm not related. So uh, no need to try to shoot. You, are, in, car you are outside Chicago, right? I am. I'm right outside Chicago. Right. And uh, there's a couple of restaurants around called Capone still. So yeah. It sounds, I, it sounds I, questionable. It sounds it, questionable. Right yeah, here. it might be. Yeah, like it, it's uh, none of your business. How about that? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the, that's the correct answer. <laughs> All right. Now, Todd, for, for anybody who's unfamiliar, can you give us just like, the one minute pitch on what is the transparency sale? What is transparency selling all about? Oh yeah, it's, well, I'll, I kind of wind it into my background. We can answer two questions with one, if that helps. Better. Uh, look at me, I'm being efficient. Um, so my last role, I was the chief revenue officer of Chicago's Power Reviews. And so Power Reviews, you could probably guess, helps retailers and brands collect and display ratings and reviews. So. You're buying a pair of shoes on Crocs, you look at the reviews, that was us helping the, with the collect and display. Essentially what happened was we did a research study with Northwestern University here in Chicago that was looking at, all right, when a website's acting as the salesperson, what does a consumer do? And what they found is first of all, we all look at reviews, right? So no surprise there, 96% of us are looking at reviews and we're buying something we haven't bought before that's of medium to high consideration. But um, this literally changed my life. The um, study showed that most of us, 82% of us, go right to the negatives first when we're looking at reviews. So we skip the fives and go right to the fours, threes, twos, and ones, exactly. I and told then, you this. this is, I, I, I don't want to waste my time on good stuff. I want to know what's bad. Well, yeah, the, the perfect stuff is for marketing. The fours, threes, twos, and ones are for me to try to predict what my experience is going to be like. And then when the review score on a product, and this is across all product categories, so it skews with some, but when the review score average is between a 4.2 and a 4.5, those products sell at the highest conversion. In other words, a 4.2 sells better than a 5. Imperfection sells better than perfection. Not having negative reviews is actually hurting you. So I look at that and I'm a nerd, a behavioral science nerd. So I start looking at, all right, that's when a website's acting as the salesperson. What happens in the human to human B2B world? And is the brain trying to do the same thing? And it turns out it is. That when we actually lead with the negatives, again, if 82% of us on our own are going to the negatives, if we can actually feed that to the buyer up front and say, hey, this is what you might not like. And if you're cool with that, you're gonna love this magic happens. And so I had tried it out a couple of times. Sales cycles sped up dramatically. Win rates went up. We were working on the deals that we should be winning and losing the deals we we're going to lose anyway faster. And I was like, uh, I got to write about this. I quit my job. Uh, the CEO, I think, still wants to kill me for that. But uh, 
it's been an incredible last couple of years on this journey. So, but that's, it, that's it. it. It's no coincidence then, Richard, you should know that the transparency sale on Amazon, I just looked it up, it's rating is a 4.5, okay? So Todd That was not on purpose, Todd, although I will say- We rigged the system here. I will say my- friends out there writing negative reviews. My, my own freaking nephew gave me a four. So, and like literally I was pissed. Like I look and I'm like, Anton, is, you gave me a four? And he's like, yeah, the, great, the book is great, but I know that all these fives are killing you. And I'm like, dude, it doesn't work that way. Like, no, that's, that's not what you're supposed to do. But yeah, I, I've had a couple that have completely roasted me, which is quite an experience. Yeah, I got, end, I, got, I got my first, like, out of one or two star review the other day, and I was super taken, taken aback. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then I, then I remembered, well, you know, it's just like sales, Scott. Not, everybody, not everybody's going to say yes. Not everybody's going to like it. But my, my first instinct was like, oh, my God, my feelings are, like, really hurt right I'm now. Gonna, I think I'm going to go and I'm going to go. <laughs> we should totally start doing this, Scott. Is we should make everybody go to their Amazon and they have to read their negative reviews out loud on the podcast. Oh, God. We did that at Power Reviews for one of our sales kickoffs. Yeah. Um, we had from our customers, our customers reading their own product negative reviews, the funniest ones. It was fantastic. It, it, that's a great idea, Richard. You this, is do that. Like, this is like your version of celebrities, you know, exactly. reading like all their negative tweets. Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, if you would like the one, that, the one that roasted me was like, it was the audio book and the person started with free is too much for this garbage. And I was like, whoo, wow. it's getting hot in here. <laughs> oh. Well, this is why Todd's book is an international bestseller, Richard, because he's got 4.5, and, and my book doesn't sell for shit, and it's rated 4.9, right? This That's is, why. This is the problem. <laughs> We've solved it. That's right. Now, now I want to ask you a really serious question for a second, because we just had Kyle Lacey on the other day on the show, and uh, he did not mentioned the fact that he worked with you at exact target so my question is is this an indication that there was sales and marketing disalignment at exact target not at all we were uh we laughed together we cried together it was um you know i exact target was the company that i was at before uh power reviews and it was an incredible run um i got there when we were at about 100 million joined the sales leadership team and then we grew it up to, you know, we IPO'd and then eventually sold it to Salesforce for a little under $3 billion. And the, the collaboration and the culture there was awesome. Like it's, culture is so often uh, talked about in a cliche, like, oh, we got to love each other. But they had actually branded the culture, this thing called Orange. Our management training was called Leading Orange. Everything was orange. But man, I, the relationship with, you know, uh, Kyle was on the content uh, marketing team. And we were always working really, really closely together. And just it was a well-oiled machine that uh, the results clearly indicate. This goes to show what, what, what can be done when uh, there's a team full of superstars, you know? What, did, what are the things that your company did at Exact Talk? Let's talk about culture since you brought it up. <laughs> what are the things that people did? So obviously they, they gravitated around the concept. Yeah. But what were the things that you did physically uh, partnering with to help foster that? you know, stronger than a belief system. Exactly. It's, um, I've actually, again, being the behavioral science nerd, I've since studied it a little bit to see if I could really indicate what it is. And the first thing that I'll tell you is 
and this is maybe a little controversial, but if you're using variable compensation as the means to motivate your sales reps, you're doing it wrong, right? Oh, you that, gotta elaborate on that. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, um, the variable compensation should be the reward for doing something you're intrinsically motivated to do. And that's up to the leadership and the organizations to drive a culture that gets me up every morning and says, man, I'm gonna run through a brick wall for this organization and make things happen. And then on the back end, I'm gonna get variable compensation as my reward, right? So that element of pay and variable comp, in my estimation from the science, is that it really drives about one sixth of what really drives engagement and kind of that connectedness and culture. And Exact Target did this so well, but you know, the, the first sixth is this piece that I call feedback, which is status, recognition, validation, that understanding that every individual there is a human being. And one of the things that drives us is getting that status and recognition. So there were mechanisms in place to make sure that people uh, you know, were validated for the work they were doing and highly engaged from that perspective. Um, the, the second F is what I call forecast, which is every morning when you wake up, you know what you're getting, right? And from the top down, every leader was consistent uh, helped you predict where the organization was going and you felt like you knew what your role was in that organization. The third F is uh, what I call freedom, which is autonomy, meaning you get the resources, the tools, the trust, and that permeated to the whole organization so there was no micromanagement. Uh, that the fourth one is function, meaning our mission, our purpose uh, was to build a great technology organization and aid the future of one-to-one -one marketing. And we all felt like we were a part of that. And then the fifth one is family, meaning we felt like we were surrounded by people that cared about us. We had security, we had trust. And then of course, you know, sixth one is fairness, which is the variable comp. So all of those elements together is what really drives engagement in any organization. And I would encourage companies to actually create a checklist and go, are we hitting all six of these? It's not just variable comp. Reps are not just coin operated. It plays a role, but you've got to balance out the other ones. So what does comp look like in, without giving away exact targets comp plan? In, I mean, in, in, a, in a Todd Capone organization, what would comp right. look like? Well, I think it needs to be consistent with, you know, paying market rate. So in, in like when I was CRO, I literally just plucked the compensation plans from exact target and brought them to power view. So there was nothing magical about that. I just think that when we as leaders place too much emphasis on the comp, in driving motivation, that's where we're, we get it wrong. I, I would, I mean, in a perfect, and I'll give you an example. It's less about comp not being a motivating factor and more about, look, you've got to think about all of the other 9 million things other than just comp. Exactly, exactly, yeah, there's, there's five other things. You know, one example is um, I went to my CFO at Power Reviews and I had him bring back from the bank 10 $100 bills. Right, and then we just did a little contest on the floor and said, hey, the next 10 reps to close a deal that's 12K ARR or more gets one of these $100 bills and we'll celebrate you and put you on the wall. These reps ran through a brick wall for these $100 bills when their commission on the deal would be- was more than $100. Well over, you know, yeah. but it was that recognition and validation and celebration and family, right? And so like, those are the types of things that I look at and go, Variable compensation is not driving the motivation. The motivation is these other elements. And if we put them all together the right way, we're going to create an environment where we want to stay, we want to run through a brick wall, and 
we want to tell all our friends, which is exactly what Exact Target did. Now I've so so go no, ahead, Scott. I, I have been asked within the last week twice what I think about quotas and how they pertain to commissions. And then I've seen some dialogue and some posts about killing off commissions and whatnot. Are you in favor of doing away with quota as it pertains to commissions or do salespeople still need to have a quota? So I, uh, you may have noticed I was trolling both of your LinkedIn profiles before I joined this call. <laughs> I have not noticed yet. Yes. And uh, so, I mean, I was just trying to get a little bit of a background because in both of your cases, you've got an extensive sales leadership background and then you both went independent. For me in 2018, the book came out and I was like, book might suck, right? I've never written a book before. Actually, pretty good chance it would suck. It, it's done so much better than I ever would have exactly imagined. Exactly how I felt about, about my book. <laughs> exactly. And so, but the first thing I did is I said, all right, how much cash runway do I have as an individual? How long can I do this? And then for me to continue to do it, how much revenue am I going to need on a quarterly basis to continue to keep the lights on? And that is my quota. Like I work for myself, like this is the whole organization. Um, and I have a quarterly quota that I develop at the beginning of the year that's based on what I need to achieve to make sure that I'm making the progress towards my end goal, which is creating a scalable business. And so for me, I am a diehard to quotas, right? Like I just missed my first quota uh, here the end of June. I uh, got to 93%, which isn't terrible, but it was a bad quarter. It's so, so funny. That, it's so funny that you mentioned that exact number, Todd, because I just mentioned last week on somebody else's show that if I did 93% to goal as a CRO, if I did that often enough, I'd probably end up losing my job. But if I do 93% to my own goal, yeah, I might be a little bit disappointed, but I'm still like, that's 93% to goal. That's pretty damn good. Yeah, exactly. That's how I felt. Like, yeah, I mean, if it becomes a, uh, you know, obviously quota is just one element of looking at your overall performance, right? Like I'm an advocate for looking at ratios. Don't look at just piles of numbers, but look at the relationship between those, right? So how many qualified opportunities are you working on? How large is each one? What's your win rate on those? What's the cycle length on those? Looking at all four of those from a ratio perspective instead of just one bucket at a time. And your results are the output of those four anyway. And so that's, that's the way I look at it. The quotas are, I mean, maybe, and I saw the post you're talking about, like I, I think I engaged on one. Maybe you change the word quota to target. Like if that makes everybody happy, cool, but you got to have something, uh, you know, Brian Tracy wrote the book, um, goals. And, um, I just talked to another author who's writing a new book about all the behavioral science around why you have to have a target, why you have to have goals, um, to achieve maximum success. So I, I don't see any science that tells us that we're doing a disservice by having quotas. Um, and then variable compensation, I just think, um, is part of the reward for doing what you're expected to do. And, I'm still an advocate for that. I'm, I'm, I'm watching these posts with bated breath myself to see what the outcome is. Yes, I, I'm, I'm in the same, uh, the same boat. I mean, I, <laughs> my answer was pretty similar to yours. And this got asked on Thursday Night Sales the other day. And Justin Welsh, was, had, his quote was, anybody who doesn't like quotas is probably missing quotas and, and things like that. <laughs> so there's, there's some pretty strong feelings on, on each, uh, each camp, if you will.
Yeah. So talk, talk about the, the decision to go solo, if you will, right? I mean, we're all, we're all in the same boat on, on some level. We've all been operators multiple times. And then we've, you know, various years now, Richard, I think was the first one to go alone than you and I'm recent into it. What was the, was it scary for you? Were you full of confidence? Did you have, you know, runway to be comfortable for a significant amount of time? What, what has it been like? Well, I, I think I may have done it first. Um, I think Richard, you and I are around the same age, but back in, um, two, so I'll give you a little backstory. Late nineties, I was with SAP. Um, I did 800% of my target in 1999 and thought I was the greatest salesperson ever. Uh, but, I think you're the greatest salesperson ever, 800% target. Either that well, or you, you had the worst goals set up of all time. <laughs> 1999 at SAP was like working at a drive through window. Oh um, so like back then it was uh, Y2K is coming. Everybody rushed to SAP, Oracle, like and just buy stuff, right? And uh, so I had a $3 million target. At the beginning of the year, I had about $2 million in uh, pipeline, and I was like, I'm never going to make it. And I ended up over $24 million. It was freaking nuts. But um, I, 2000 came around as we were kind of talking on the, uh, the pre-show. I went running for the startup world, like ran. The boat had already left, and I went right in the water um, and realized really quickly that I was kind of a B-minus, C-plus sales rep, but my passion was always for leadership and teaching. And so in 2002, late 2002, I took everything I owned and bought a sales training franchise. And um, now that, that now that's what I'm talking about. Like that is a serious leap of faith and commitment there in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And after September 11th and the, the kind of the economy imploding right after that, there was this glut of middle level managers and I was never going to get there. I had no experience and like, Who's going to hire me for that? So I had to change the rules or change the game. And at the time, I felt like I had nothing to lose because I was kind of miserable. Um, and I, yeah, it was highly risky. I think year one in the franchise, I did about um, 16000 in revenue. <laughs> so it sucked. Like it was freaking horrible. Um, but like over the three-year period, I, I got into, you know, 100 different sales organizations. I learned how each one was run. Um, I learned what was good, what was bad. I learned, a, you know, how do you create a foundational structure for how you scale growth? And when I popped out, um, you know, a couple of years later, I joined a, a startup out of uh, Pleasanton, another one, a company called Right Hemisphere. And soon into my tenure, I got promoted to be VP of Worldwide Sales because I think they said, ah, oh, he's cheap. And man, he knows about 10 times more than what we've got now. Let's go. And I was able to impart all of this stuff and so the answer to your question is, in my career, I've done this a couple of times where I've taken a big leap um, and know that if I suck at it, the worst thing that could happen is I'm 50 times better on the back end. And in both cases, I needed to have a little bit of runway. You know, that first time I literally sold everything I had. I was living in a crappy little place just trying to get by. But I knew if I just do this for a couple of years, I'm going to be so much better than I was. And sure enough, that's what happened. And the same thing with this book. It's, uh, I wrote it. If it sucked, I feel pretty confident in my skills that I could go get a job again. Uh, but I'm finding that I'm, I'm just having a blast spreading the good word and helping companies. So going to keep doing it. Cool. What, um, when you were, 
were you the competitive kid growing up? Were you always in sales? Were you hustling on the side or did you have any, no desire? You had no thought about going. Um, that's a, that's a really long uh, answer. I think that, um, First of all, my first sales job was in college. Um, I went to uh, Indiana University and I, a woman came in and talked to our marketing team about an open role selling um, newspaper ads for the Indiana Daily Student newspaper. And I was like, oh, that'd be cool. My dad was in sales. So my dad grew up in sales and was always in it, loved it. So I was like, you know what, that'd be fun experience. I'll go sell to the liquor stores and all of that around town and you know, maybe get a discount or whatever. Well, I went and I uh, took that job and that kind of catapulted me to it. When I got out of college, nobody interviewing for the sales jobs had any experience and I had sold for two years newspaper ads. So that was like a huge leap. But to answer your question, like, was I always competitive? Not really. Um, when I came across these transparency concepts and you know, got to the point of writing the book, I've always been that guy that was kind of like um, my CEO at right hemisphere in 2007 used to get mad at me because I wouldn't get mad at the reps. Um, like I never, he never heard me raise my voice, never heard me yell. Cause I was just like, these, these are people like me. Like I'm just, and I was younger than all of them. When I came across these transparency concepts, I was like, all right, not only does transparency sell better than perfection, but the proliferation of reviews means we've got to do it anyway. Now is the time to start acting like human beings when we sell. Here's how you do it. And so I was really, really excited to write the book because I'm tired of seeing sales at the bottom of the least trusted or, uh, professions list that Gallup puts out every year. And that Transparency is my personality. And now I finally have the science and the data to back up why we all should be doing it. And uh, th this, is kind of, this is kind of me. So is that when you really fell in love with sales? Was sort of once you sort of grasped those concepts? Um, yeah, I think that uh, I fell in love with sales in my, um, in that job, but my first two jobs out of college were nightmares. Um, like I sold overnight shipping for Airborne Express and it was a hundred cold calls a day or you're fired. Um, it was a, um, I had a, they gave me a company car and they would just randomly come check it. And if you had a candy wrapper on the floor, they would dock your commissions. If you had a wire hanger instead of a wooden hanger for your suit, and like at the time I had no money. I had three suits that I bought at TJ Maxx that I just wore over and over and over again that were like threaded. And uh, I, I like, I freaking hated sales at the beginning. It was a nightmare. Um, but, you know, once I realized that there, I had a passion for, you know, the kind of the, the brain science, the decision science around it and started studying that and going, all right, I think I can use this. I got better. And then it kind of led me to where I am now, which is how do we take a bigger leap and get this out into the brains of the sales profession? So what made you stick with it? Cause I know a lot of people where, you know, back in that time where it was like, yep, you had to wear the suit and you had to wear the tie and you know, it was kind of, I was in newspaper sales too. Um, why did you stick with it if you hated all those things? I kept thinking that, the, oh, oh, I'll tell you two things. Um, I left Airborne Express to come back to Chicago. Uh, so I did Airborne Express in Southern California. I came back to Chicago and uh, joined a company called Computer Associates. And um, one of my buddies was there. And I, he was like, dude, it's fun. We'll just have a fun group and you'll make good money. And at the time, I was motivated by money, right? Like, I just was like, I'll just come in and do it. Now, CA was kind of rough, but I did three and a half years there. But then I went to SAP. And like I said, SAP was like working 
at a uh, drive-through window and I made a ton of money and we had a blast and uh, that's what really solidified it for me. And yeah, kind of the, the rest is history, but you've got to be in the right environment and those right environments exist. The old school cultures that used to be around, I mean, you probably remember some of these in the late 1990s, man, those just don't exist anymore. And sales is a better place to be. Talk about that. What were those old school cultures? Oh, Talk just the, the big down. I still yeah. exist. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, well, first of all, there's still some old school uh, methodologies out there that I see. And I'm sure you see too, that like we're still um, teaching people like it's 1982. But um, like yeah, in the mid which ones do you think are bad? Oh, I don't, I'm not calling anybody out, brother. On, but uh, but I do, dude, I, you can't see it. But um, when I owned my sales training company from 2003 to 2006, I just this weekend was cleaning out the garage and found all the books that I had. Now I saw, I saw your picture. Of yes. That. Yeah. Um, and I had to know, I knew every word of those books and I could teach every single one of them. And so like, as I'm sitting there on Saturday, I'm leafing through and I'm like, I can't believe I used to teach this crap, but it was the old school cold calling, like just beat them until they, you know, it, like there was a lot of that kind of stuff where um, you got, I, I'll give you an example. The way we used to teach uh, cold calling was that it's not your opening that matters. It's the, your response to their negative reaction to your cold call. And all of those fall into one of four categories, right? The customer is either all set, meaning they've got something already. They're not interested, which could be, we don't have the budget. I'm not the right person. They could say, hey, send me some information. Or they say, I'm too busy, like call me later. And so if you know that one of those four are coming, you should be able to conversationally and directly turn those around. So they say one, you turn it around. They say another, you turn it around. And you just do it until, like, I used to teach this crap. Like, that was kind of the old school methodology that you would just do it until they, like, I hate you, and they hang up. And that's, that's so, no way to live. And like, So what's new school? Well, I think a lot of this stuff is new school, right? That when we look at the, the word empathy, is overused in sales. Like I just, we keep hearing empathy, but I don't think we really understand what it is. I think if we have empathy for the way that human beings want to engage, want to prioritize, want to decide and want to buy, then our role is to help them on that journey. That's why leading with transparency helps, right? Because our buyers are trying to make a decision and we're only giving them one side of the story. Giving them both sides of the story is, what a true salesperson is meant to be. Instead of being a necessary evil, we become an added value to the sales process. And it's things like that, right? It's aiding the buyer, being the Sherpa, being their personal trainer and helping them not only see whether or not going with you is a good decision, but maybe helping them see that they can achieve more than they thought so, they could. So let's just say you cold call me and I say, you know, sorry, God, I'm, I'm not interested. Now, what do you say? Well, I wouldn't cold call you, Richard. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? You to give people some tactics, right? Well, yeah, exactly. I think, um, so from a prospecting he's saying, perspective. He's saying, he wouldn't, he's saying he wouldn't call you. You wouldn't pick up the phone and call. Right. So my tactics are, I believe that salespeople should be building relationships and not cold outreaching. Or if they are cold outreaching, the cold outreaches no longer include a sales pitch. And I know that's counterintuitive. But if you think about, as a CRO, in my last role, I got 150 emails a day and I was in 30 to 35 meetings per week. I checked my email because I had to. It's kind of like the instant lottery. Like I got to scratch it off because there could be a winner in there. 
but odds are it's filled with losers, right? And so what stood out to me? Well, most of it was white noise, the emails that started with I wanted to, or hey, I was just checking, or could I get 10 minutes on your calendar? The ones that stood out to me were the ones that were personalized and valuable in the first 10 words of the email, because every inbox that I have has got a preview, right? My Outlook, my phone, my Gmail, and sales reps are not using that. And so in a two-week period, one company sent me an email saying, hey, Todd, I just, actually, I had just posted SDR roles on our website. Two days later, they send me an email saying, Todd, here is a SDR salary survey of what SDRs in the Chicago market are making. And I looked at it, I opened it. It was like, hey, we just saw that you posted these roles, thought this could be helpful. I looked at it and I'm like, wow, this is helpful. This is great. Two weeks later, quarter ends, they send me another email. Hey, Todd, here is a CRO board deck template that you could use to speed your prep for your board meeting. I open it up, next sentence. Hey, you just ended your quarter, thought this could be helpful. I'm like, who are these guys? They could see that I was engaging. Then they called. I could see on the caller ID it was them. I answered happily because now, they added value to me. Now let me now let me push you for more specificity here. I I would venture to say that people, a lot of modern sellers understand this point that you're making and probably even know now those are good ways to add value without an ask. Right? I think now what people are trying to figure out is. What's the ratio? Like, do I need to have two or three emails where I add value like that before I ask for something? Is it five to one? Is it 10 to one? Or is it as many as it takes until the prospect asks you, hey, what do you do over there? Well, I think I, I'm still trying to understand those numbers. What do you, what do you teach people there? Yeah, I mean, well, I, when I think about Richard's question about like what's a modern sales technique, right? I, I think about it from the empathetic perspective of you've got to put yourself truly in the shoes of the people that you're trying to buy or trying to sell to, right? And so for me, um, the way that we started teaching our sellers was to look at the tracking data. So if you send an email that's short, but it's got a link and you start to see that that link's been open once, twice, 10 times, 20 times, call. Like now is the time you've actually added value. And in some cases, um, you know, maybe they've sent it around because they thought it was ridiculous, but that's rare. But I think you can, you can sense that when somebody is engaging in your content, it's better to reach out to those people than it is to the ones that have no freaking clue who you are. Because for me, again, in my last role, I keep going back to that because I think it's important. My priorities were my team, my customers, my prospects. Number 14 on my priority list at work was unknown potential vendors. Like there's investors, there's my boss, there's partners, there's my, you know, like all of those people. You're number 14. And when you start an email with, I wanted to, you're still number 14. You've got to earn the right to show me that you can help me with those top three priorities. And that's how you do it. Earn the right. That's perfect uh, hashtag there, Richard. But that's, and like, you know, Josh, Josh Brown talks about that. There's Josh Brown, he, a lot of people talk about this idea of you wouldn't go to a bank and make withdrawal if you haven't made a deposit. And so I don't think there's a hard and fast ratio. It's just use some sense. Look at your tracking data and see that but when so they're many, engaging with it, reach out. But so many people don't have this common sense or this intuition <laughs> or the experience. Right. Or the, I think it's their management. Their leadership doesn't have the common sense. The leadership is pushing them to hit the number. It's a numbers game. It's a numbers game. It's a numbers game. And it's a thoughtful numbers game. 
Mm -hmm. right? it's, it's a meaningful numbers game, not a numbers game. Uh, at least that's, that's my opinion of it. So, well, yeah, that's when I, when I talked about earlier, the, the idea of ratios, um, you know, one of the things that one of my uh, managers, we had a rep that was incredible at getting meetings and getting um, deals into the pipeline. And everybody would look at him and go, dude, how are you doing this? You're amazing at that. Well, if you look at his back end results, they weren't so good. And it was because he was great at qualifying, but his win rates were bad, his deal sizes were bad, his cycle lengths were long. And so the modern sales leaders got to look at metrics as ratios and understand the full story. And if that's what we're just looking at, where we need hard and fast metrics around some of these things, I don't think there's any one size fit all. There certainly never was in my organizations that we, we had to look at the whole story and all of these pieces together to be able to paint a good picture. Cause like Richard, like how do you coach if that's all you're looking at and you don't really know the other elements I, I think you, you really get stuck. So do you, do you feel like it's getting, it's getting harder or easier to sell and to, to be a modern sales leader, as you said, if, if you and I and Richard were to go back into, you know, VP of sales, CRO mode, do you think it'd be, it'd be harder now than it was a few years ago? Or do you think it's getting easier? Um, well, I think it was getting easier up until, you know, four months ago. Uh, I think we've got to understand that, you know, consensus selling has always been hard, but consensus buying just got an awful lot harder. When buyers are all remote and we are all biased towards taking the shortest path to a reward, not necessarily take any path to a big reward, that we've got to optimize for the buying, you know, the buying process and make sure we're optimizing for the way that buyers want to engage and decide. I think that part has gotten an awful lot harder in the, in the short term. I think it's, it's gotten slower and probably a little bit tighter. So, as well. you, so what do you recommend to us, right? Like, so are we now going back to your point about, Hey, you know, you're, you're number 14 on my list. And you know, if you're not careful, you're going to be number 18. <laughs> uh, you know, as my, as my uncle always says, you know, there are four pages in the will and it's my job to get off page five. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that is an awesome line. Holy cow. When, when my kids were cubs for T-ball same year, I, I moved to page one. So for a year, um, but so what do we do? What, what do we do now? Are we now having to send more of these, you know, again, doubling down on that strategic, approach, look at the things that the company's doing, acknowledging it, moving forward, and then try to, you know, build that value. Is that, is that what you're still seeing work? Um, well, I'll tell you, I'll give you, can I, I'll give one piece of advice that I, I think everybody should really look at. Um, the one piece of good news in this uncertainty is that we can read the minds of buyers. And when I say that, I mean, in an up market, you could be thinking about all kinds of things like, hey, should we get a personal trainer? Hey, we need a new couch. We could upgrade the car. Well, all the discretionary stuff disappeared. And we all went to looking at our essentials and saying, how do we extend our runway of those and reduce our costs? And then let's look at worst case scenario. How do we protect against worst case scenario happening to us? So my, my point here is that the first piece of advice that I would tell everybody to do is, Go look at their messaging pre-pandemic, hit select all, delete, and then go into a room and figure out who are we now in you know, July, August of 2020, and why should buyers care now? 
and rewrite those paragraphs. Like I, the first thing I did after, you know, crying in the fetal position in March when my whole calendar disappeared was I, you know, rewrote my, the, my website. And then I, I got on the phone with a couple of companies that were really struggling. Um, you know, one of which is in the office, um, you know, the, it's office technology that zero, zero people needed come March 15th, right? And they went from on fire to completely empty pipeline. And, you know, over a couple of days, they completely rewrote their, their, uh, their website copy to be focused on what post-pandemic offices look like. And all of the pictures on their websites, people are wearing masks now. And it, like, it really speaks to somebody today versus 2019. And they're back up to 80% of where they were already. And so that, that's the advice. Look at your website and go, hey, if we wrote this in 2019, delete it and let's completely refresh it based on where we are today. And then make sure that all the reps are enabled to be delivering messages that are relevant in, in the summer of 2020 versus what an upmarket would look like. I really love that because there's, there's been so much talk about how people <clears throat> and companies can uh, kind of keep the culture and vibe that they had moving forward. And I keep saying, no, you're not going to keep it. You need to reinvent it. Yes. It has become something completely different probably. And you're talking about doing that in an even deeper, more powerful way than I was talking about it, which is you're talking about the actual messaging, the actual mechanism, the website that brings in attention and customers. So that's, that's really good advice. I've been saying all along that people had to go back and redo their product market fit in April. They yeah. had to actually go back and do it again in July because I think everybody was hoping somehow this thing was going to go away. And I think once a quarter, you're going to have to sort of go and, and redo this. And, you know, come September, October, you know, we're going to have to redo it. And then even come December and January. I mean, it's, it's a constant product market fit adjustment more so than any other time. Um, and, and particularly if you've got, I mean, I can't even imagine if I'm a technology company, you know, what my roadmap now looks like. Has my roadmap completely shifted? on what my priorities are of getting out. And so it, it, it's, it's certainly an interesting business case study. Of course, I wish the world didn't have to go through it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I literally, like all the programs, all the speaking that I do, I rewrote every paragraph. Like I just started over mm -hmm. uh, because the stuff I was talking about before, who cares? Like it's, and I think every organization that's doing that is starting to see the fruits of that. And I'm amazed, um, like I gave a talk to a leadership group in Indianapolis a few weeks ago and they sent me the roster of attendees it's all CEOs of you know mid-sized companies in Indianapolis of all you know industries mm -hmm. and I was amazed um, I went into I think it's archive.org where you can see what their website looked like in 2019 oh, and, it and the, the the percentage of companies that had changed any of their website copy was tiny and they're all struggling right now it's just like hey start there and then go work with marketing and figure out who are we today um, and why should companies care? And what the, the, the provocative line I often say is messaging developed during an up market won't work in a down market. And I, I believe that to be mostly true with many organizations. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think, I think you know, your, your messaging when you're you know, right after a breakup, when you try and date again, isn't going to work, you know? So um, from when you were dating somebody, <laughs> That's right. you gotta change your messaging. Um, so, so I want to ask you one totally bizarre question. How'd you get on the speaker circuit, right? How do you, 
you have to go get an agent to be your speaker agent or do you just like there's like a website and you go plop your name in there or like what is the speaker circuit yeah it's crazy i'm working on it right now um it the speaker circuit's weird um so that the speaker circuit is essentially like all these companies around the world um they have conferences they've got events there's conventions and then they just pick off people and you know give you money to come talk right and this this whole transparency concept is so relevant and uh you know and like the way i present it's i think it's pretty entertaining people seem to get an awful lot out of it and so um i just started with you know i joined the national speakers association first of all and learned an, an awful lot there um, but there's a couple of things. Number one is after the book came out, I, I hired a publicist for three months. I don't know if you did that, Scott, but um, it was uh, just to have somebody that was out throwing my name into everything. And it, it gave me a lot of publicity. I don't know if it gave me an ROI. Um, but then the second thing that I did is I hired a speaker, a professional speaker coach. Now, I've always been pretty good on stage, but I'm an advocate for everybody that's listening, by the way. If you're good at something, get a coach and accelerate your lead, like extend your lead. Um, it's like, you know, every athlete, every professional that you know has a coach to make them better at what they do. Well, that's what I did. And it turns out that that, um, that speaker coach is a leader in a massive speakers bureau. And so I had to go through this whole process of creating a media kit. And uh, in the next week, I'm presenting to their board around what I, like you know basically all of their agents will get together and decide whether i'm a clown or not but uh but that's that's <laughs> part of the process you, well you tried to say the publicist may or may not brought roi but if it's led to all of these engagements is it, it had roi right yeah i think so you're right yeah i guess it has it's um there's never a direct line between publicity and and roi but interesting Right. I, I know that Richard almost fell out of his chair when you asked me if I'd hired a publicist yet because I, I spend no money. <laughs> yeah. Richard, Richard's probably dying. He's going like, oh, he's got to spend money on trim his beard. I don't even I'd shave. I don't even shave or get a haircut hardly. So I don't spend money on razors. Right, Richard? Exactly. Exactly. That's awesome. Uh, that's a good, that's a good idea though. I mean, I especially agree with the point about, uh, you know, getting a professional speaking coach, right? I mean, look, no matter how many times all of us have gotten up in front of, you know, groups of a couple hundred inside your company or do, doing smaller kind of engagements, um, we can certainly get better. You know, yeah. I don't know if you've ever, I'm sure you have, as I have, but I've listened to myself back on tape a million times and a million times I've been like, oh my God. What was I talking about? I sound horrible. <laughs> yeah. 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 I exactly. listen to myself a million times and complain about myself two million times. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's what we do, though. Like, you know, if, if, if there's a group picture that you're in, what do you do? You look at it first and you're like, God, I look like a dope that day, right? Like, that's what we do. Yeah. And, like, that's something that, I mean, I used to encourage all the reps is if you can't record both sides of a cold call, at least record yourself. And then ask yourself, would I want to continue talking to me? And I bet you most of the time the answer is no, right? And so like, I, I think that that's part of this with the speaker thing is I see myself on stage and I'm like, I, I think I could do better. Like people, the like, feedback's always been good, but, and this guy taught me so much to level up my game that I can't wait to get in front can of you, can you share? Can you share one professional speaking tip that you learned from him that you can donate to us for free? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that he told me uh, that I was not doing was lead with a story. Like you've got to engage people in the first 30 seconds with a story, not data. And for goodness sake, not a whole freaking bio about all the great things you've done. Like we are all have a tendency to go, oh, I was an exec target and power reviews and oh, aren't I awesome? Well, no, you build credibility through your stories and through the knowledge that you deliver, not through your background and experiences. So start with a story. And so I reordered and I saw immediate lift in engagement from leading with some kind of powerful story instead of leading with my bio. That's really cool. I like that one. What, um, when we're sort of getting to the end, um, as we always do on our podcast, you know, we like to flip it around. How can we be of help to you? Um, what can we um, do to you? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that because you kind of teed me up for it. Um, and I'm curious about your listeners too, but like you two specifically, you know, there's a whole community of individuals who have taken the leap like we have, oh, right? Yeah. Where we've left the, the working world. And then as I was going through March when everything shut down, and like I said, I, you know, cried in the fetal position for a few hours and then kind of figured it out. April and May was great. June was terrible. July has been really good. August seems to be great. I'm looking... I, I would love to get together with a group of people that have taken this leap and learn lessons from one another. Cause there's technology we're using, there's approaches we're using. There's even just the kind of the camaraderie of what's going on and how yeah. do we go through this? And I have yet to find a good collection of individuals that will just get yeah. together on a regular basis. So. Well, I mean, we might be able to help you with that. There's a uh, secret society, secret handshake. I'm I'm kidding about all this, but we 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 had a we had a we've had a couple conversations in Zooms with you know half dozen plus people who are in the same circle circuit whatever you want to whatever you want to call it. And it's a it's a really good idea. And and what I've learned is how different everybody operates their business and how everybody's niche is actually quite different when on the surface. Um, people might lump us all into the same, you know, group, the same category. We're right? all sales leaders, and we're not exactly. He's all these, you know, sales trainers, sales leaders, what have you. But no, it's like, you know, we do very different things and operate differently and spend differently, and our earnings are different, and our goals to earn are very different. Um, so. I think I think that's a good idea, and, and uh, we're probably overdue for another one of those. Uh, we probably should do that. Build. And you know what? Can I just mention, you know, back to kind of wrapping that around a, a tip, is that in our industry, because everybody lumps us together, we're not doing a good job of differentiating what we do, right? And that's one of the things I, I'm having, like, one-off conversations and trying to better define, like, what is it that I deliver that a potential customer for me will look at and go, I don't want Todd, I want Richard for this, but I don't want Richard for this, I want Todd for this, and I know clearly what they do, and I have not, I have not gotten to that point where I feel like I'm articulating that well, and I don't know if you guys have, but I'm sure somebody has. I think I articulate it well now. I don't think, I mean, the challenge is that like, we're just not household names, and I don't know that we are here right? Like we're not Zoom. Oh, you are, dude. Don't sell yourself short, Richard. No. You are. As long, as long as I am and Scott's not, then I'm okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, but, but even still, like, and I've had the conversations like with John Barrows and stuff, and it's like, 
oh, John's the sales trainer, just call John. He's worked with so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And I think to a large degree, that's, that's about as good as I ever need to be. Because if I finally get, oh, I've seen you work with so-and-so and so-and-so, then I can go differentiate myself. And, or they can go to my website and see my differentiations. But even then, to, to your point, I think at least when I'm in competitive situations in sales, I know how to differentiate myself from everybody else. Um, and I'm so minutia oriented in a good way mm-hmm. that it's hard to, how do you take that at a high level? And are people going to even believe it if they read it? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt like when I went on the book writing journey, I learned so many things, but I felt alone through that whole process. Um, I wrote a list of 70 meaty things that I learned on the book writing journey. So Richard, when you're ready, um, I will share I'm actually in the middle. I, I'm stuck right now. Like I, All right. I'm, I'm going to send you, I'll send you the list. Um, that hopefully that helps uh, kind of shake you loose a little bit, but I feel the same way around building a, a true consulting speaking and training business that I, I like every day. It feels like I'm learning lessons on my own that I know other people have advice and I know there's things I'm doing that can help other people. And I've yet to see that avenue to make that come together. Here's my give back. You should just turn that into an ebook. Hire hire somebody to make that an ebook for you. Of here's what I learned about writing my book. That's seventy tips, dude. I'd buy that. Or or, or better yet, Todd, organize, organize all of us and be the union leader. Absolutely. You could be, you could be our Jimmy Jim, be our Jimmy Hoffa, dude. <laughs> That's right. And just, just, uh, just, just don't disappear. Exactly. I don't want to be buried in the end zone at New York Jet Stadium. So. <laughs> All right. Hey, Todd, this has been fantastic, man. This has flown by. Uh, we totally appreciate all the insights and wisdom you've shared. And it's, it's, real, it's a real delight to get to know you and, and learn from you. So thank you for joining us. I've had a blast, guys. That was a, so much fun. And it's so great to meet you. And hopefully sometime soon we can actually see each other in person instead of through the green dot on our laptop. Totally agree. Totally agree. And and a quick shout out to our sponsor, Lead411. If you're looking for uh, lead intent data as well as direct dial phone numbers, uh, you want a cool, slick uh, Chrome extension plugin that pulls stuff off LinkedIn, please be sure to check out Lead411. All right, man. Thank you so much, Todd. Thank you, guys. That was awesome.